I love you. It's good to see everybody here this morning. Good to everybody tuned in. I'm glad you guys are tuned in uh, this morning on the internet as well. Uh, we are going through the book of 1 John. It's a 13-week series, and we're going to get through the entire, the entire book. And uh, the topic that we're working under is so that you may know that you believe. We are believers in Jesus Christ, and because of that, we have eternal life. The book of John is given to us because God wants us to know that we believe. God wants us to understand that we are saved. God wants our salvation to, um, is, is secure. Our salvation is secure, but God wants us to know that our salvation is secure. So the book of 1 John, what it does, it gives us numerous tests. Uh, and during these tests, we can, we can read these passages. We can read the book of 1 John, and we can come to a conclusion, come to an understanding is that, wow, I have accepted Christ. Wow, I do believe in him. Wow, I, I do understand him. Because when you believe in him, something's coming out of your life. Something has taken place. And so if you just look at your notes, you'll see just the breakdown of the entire book of 1 John, and you'll also get the breakdown of all this, um, the points in um, the series, because there's 13 different points. And you'll notice that there's five chapters in John, but we're only working with four chapters, and that is because the fifth chapter just gives a review of what was said um, in the first four chapters. But during these, uh, the book of 1 John, you have three different categories of the test. You have a character test, a relationship test, and then you have a doctrinal test. And so when we look at uh, a character test, we... We highlighted it when we talked about believers, they walk in the light. What is the light? There's two different kingdoms, light and darkness. When I accept Christ, I move from one kingdom into the next, and I walk inside of that kingdom. And if you want more information on that, go back to the sermon that was already preached. Believers claim that we have sin. You cannot be saved unless you say, I am a sinner and I am in need of a Savior. Saying that you have sin, saying that you're not, is saying you're not in charge, that you're not going to be able to get to heaven on your own merit. Saying that you are a sinner is a first step to salvation. So when we say that we're sinners, what's going to take place? It's a character test. If you say that I'm not a sinner and I do not sin, I will say that your soul's in struggle. You're in, you're in trouble because sin is an issue. And we need to make the statement that we are sinners, claim that we are sinners. Another character test is believe that you're, um, believers believe that they're obedient to God. Believers grow Believers do not live in the dominion of sin. We haven't even gotten to that one yet, but we'll be talking about that one in two weeks. Then there's a relationship test. What happens with believers is when they accept Christ, they have, they have fellowship with God. That's what accepting Christ is, is I want to meet with God. I want to talk with God. I want God to be my father, and I want to be his son. And therefore, you can continue that fellowship with him through your life. Believers find joy in the gospel slash fellowship with God. Believers do not love the world. Believers have a sense of wonder. We have not gotten to that one yet, but we'll talk about it. Believers love one another. Yes, that's mentioned three different times in three different passages through the book of 1 John. Um, am I a Christian? Do I believe God? Do I believe that Jesus left heaven, came to earth, and died in my stead? Well, the marks of that is seeing that and then turn around and loving our brother. And I can't wait till that sermon because it's going to be a big one, just in the sense that that's the marks of a believer is that we are going to love our brothers. Marks of believers, someone who um, believes because a believer, a believers love because they have been loved, it just comes out of us. So you have character tests, you have relationship tests, and then you have a doctrinal test. Doctrine is a set of teachings that we all agree on. So when it comes to um, doctrine, uh, there is something that's in our mind that we have to believe. There's something in our mind that we have to bow down to. There's something in our mind that we have to submit to. There's something in our mind that is going, that if you believe it, this is what will save you. 
because there is a route to heaven, and the world offers so many different routes, but the Bible offers one route. So there has to be a set of doctrines that we believe collaboratively to be a Christian. Because if we don't believe in what's going to take place is that we're just completely connected to another religion. And so those two that John mentions, which he only mentions two, two different passages, and then we're going to talk about the first one today, is believers believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's what we're going to talk about today. And the next one is believers test the spirits and they'll come to the conclusion that, that the word of God is the true word of God. So John only had two that he mentioned, and these are the two that he mentioned These are doctrinal statements that you need to grab a hold on to, to love, to submit to, to find your joy in, to find your excitement in, is because that is the way that salvation takes place in your life, is under these. So believers believe that Jesus is the Christ. It is the one that we're going to work on today. Let's work through the passage, and then we will try to understand what it means to believe that there is a Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. 1 John 2, 21 says this. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning." If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know everyone also has practiced righteousness is born from him. See how, God, how, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we could be called children of God, and that is what we are. Believers, Believe that Jesus is the Christ. We want to ask the question, what is the Christ? What is the Christ? Number one, Christ means Christos, means Messiah, anointed one, expected one. Now, when we're looking into this doctrine that Jesus is the Christ, it is a doctrine that our salvation rests on. Um, it's a doctrine that our, um, the way that we get to heaven is, is this, with this understanding is what we carry our way into heaven. That's, that's the way it is. So when you look at doctrine, there's four different categories of doctrine. There's discussion doctrine, debate doctrine, divide for doctrine, and then die for doctrine. And so with these four different doctrines that are, you're, you kind of look at the Bible and observe from, um, discussion doctrine is just there's angels. You know, there, there's demons. You know, the Bible says that. The Bible explains it. So it's something you just, you just talk about. But there's also a debate doctrine, and that's where things aren't necessarily as clear, and then we take certain beliefs, and then one person will believe this, another person will believe this, but it has nothing to do with salvation. What you do is you just sit there and debate, you know, Calvinism and Arminianism, you know, that's a a thick doctrine that people will take stances on, and then they'll debate. I mean, you're brothers in Christ, 
you only debate with a mature person, but it's not a doctrine that, you, that determines your salvation or not. Uh, the other doctrine out there is a divide-for doctrine. Um, a divide-for doctrine um, is, for instance, we don't speak in tongues. Um, some churches speak in tongues. Well, you know, we're Baptists. The Bible talks about speaking in tongues, but we've taken a stance and we've taken a position in regards to that doctrine that we're not speaking in tongues, that's, that tongues have ceased. Well, if somebody believes that tongues haven't ceased, that doesn't determine their salvation. That's not determined. They're still our brothers in Christ. There's still a unified spirit. They're speaking in tongues. We're not speaking in tongues. We're believers because we believe in a core doctrine. And what is the core doctrine that we would believe in that would differentiate Christianity from all other religions? It would be that Jesus is the Christ, and that would go under a die-for doctrine. Discussion doctrine, debate doctrine, divide-for, die-for doctrine. This doctrine starts to mess with salvation. This doctrine starts to mess with salvation. Because Jesus isn't the Christ, then there's another way that you got to get to heaven besides him. There's another way that you got to get to heaven besides him. So the term means, which is in Greek is Christos, which means Messiah, anointed one, and expected one. So as we hear that, we're like, well, yeah, we, we, we know all this. But this was a huge thing in the New Testament when Jesus came to earth. And the reason why it was a huge thing when Jesus came to earth in the New Testament is because everybody was waiting for a Messiah. Everybody was waiting for the anointed one. Everybody was waiting for the expected one. Why were they waiting for him? Because the entire Old Testament is pushing towards Jesus. You know, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant was given to Abraham that he'd be a father of many nations, that there would be a savior that would walk on this earth that would save people. And that would be the father, and he would be the one that would be the father of that nation, this, those who are saved. And then it went through this, this bloodline, which would be his heirs, Isaac and Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, to, to King David. And Jesus is called what? Jesus is called the son of David. Do you see what, what's going on? Is that whole Old Testament is pushing towards a Messiah that is coming. So before the New Testament took place, everybody's waiting with anticipation for this Savior of the world, for this Messiah to walk on this earth. And then all of a sudden, Matthew writes his book. When he writes his book, what does he say in the first chapter? It's usually a chapter that we all skip. And the reason why it's a chapter we all skip is because there's just a whole bunch of genealogies. Abraham, from Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, uh, Jacob to Judah, Judah to Perez, Perez to Hezron, Hezron to Ram, and uh, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the household of Mary, the one who is born Jesus is Christ. I I just skipped 90% of that chapter because it just explains the genealogies. What is this doing? It's grabbing a hold of the Old Testament and saying the whole Old Testament is, is about this one Messiah that has walked on this earth. And then also in the Old Testament, it explains what's going to happen to the Messiah. I mean, we see the Christmas story in the book of Isaiah. There's a Messiah that's going to come to earth, and he's going to be born of a virgin. You don't get that explanation in the, um, in the, the New Testament Gospels. You see it in the New Testament Gospels. But you get the explanation in the Old Testament. So they're anticipating what? People are anticipating a virgin birth, which means that God's going to walk on earth. They'll also see what's going to happen with the Messiah in Isaiah 53. He's going to be despised, rejected, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we will be healed. That's all Old Testament. So what is these New Testament people waiting for? They're waiting for all this to unfold. So when Jesus comes and says, 
I am the Christ, the Son of God, he's making a powerful statement that he is the one. That he is the one. Well, what does it mean? Uh, what does it look like? To say that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, this is what it means after we can look at the entire New Testament. It is that I believe that a man came 2,000 years ago named Jesus. When you say that I believe that Jesus is the Christ, you are saying now in our modern world, 2,000 years ago, there was a time that on earth where there was a man named Jesus. History books don't doubt it. History books don't even question it. If you're going to believe that Jesus is a Christ, you have to believe there was a man that came 2,000 years ago. Now, which is a really interesting statement, and the reason why is because when we talk about religion, we, we love to talk about the mystery behind everything. We like to talk about the spiritual world. But when we say that we believe Jesus is a Christ, we're talking about a historical event, a historical event that took place 2,000 years ago. That's what we mean when we say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. What else do we mean when we say it? I be- we're saying, I believe that Jesus is God. We're wrapping up the entire scripture here um, as we're looking at this statement. But when Jesus says, he is the Christ, we believe that he is not only a man, but that he is God. Now, I'll tell you that this historical event that took place 2,000 years ago, most religions have grabbed a hold of it. Most religions believe it. Most religions have even embraced it. If you look at Islam, they believe that Jesus did walk 2,000 years ago and that he was a major prophet, and he is a part of the religion of Islam. Hinduism believe that Jesus was a holy man, a wise teacher, qualified to be a Hindu saint. Some Hindus see Jesus as the perfect example of self-realization, which is the foundation of the Hindu religion. So they're explaining, yeah, Jesus is right. Yes, it happened 2,000 years ago. Yes, he was on earth 2,000 years ago, and he was a holy man and a wise teacher. Hinduism has embraced that. Buddhism says that he is an enlightened one. He's a good teacher. Um, Even pieces of Judaism, they will not condemn Jesus. They will say, yes, Jesus was there. Yes, miracles took place. But what is different from a Christian than anybody else is that Jesus is who he said he was. And what did he say he was? He said, before Abraham existed, I was, meaning I am God. He said, the Father and I are what? Are one. He asked the question, why was Jesus crucified? Well, because when the Messiah came down, he made some radical, radical statements. The most radical statement he made is that I am God. So as believers, when we say that Jesus is the Christ, what are we saying? We're saying that that man that walked 2,000 years ago is not just a nice guy, is not just a good teacher, is not just a prophet, is not even just a good example that we should follow, but the man that walked 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, is God made into a man. That's what we're saying when we say Jesus is the Christ. Let us see. This is what we're also saying when Jesus is the Christ. I believe that Jesus lived a perfect life and never sinned once. I want to go back to the Old Testament because there's so many sacrifices um, in the Old Testament. So many sacrifices. So many animal sacrifices. Um, This is not a sacrifice, but it is a story. 
uh, two weeks ago, I had a cow butchered. And uh, when I had a, a cow butchered, my daughter, little did I know, was upstairs and, and watched the whole thing that had been butchered. So after the cow was butchered, I walked upstairs, and my daughter said, I saw the whole thing. And I'm like, oh, great. And then she started explaining me. He shot him. I said, I know and he says, and then she hung him up. I said, I understand that that's what it took place. And then she said, and he also skinned him. And then he cut him into four pieces, and then he put him into the trailer. Now, she was telling me all this because she was saying it was gross. It was, it was disgusting. Now, we all eat meat, but we don't think about where it comes from. Well, she didn't think about where it came from until she looked out the back window. And after she looked out the back window, she saw where the meat comes from. It's something completely, entirely disgusting. What took place in the Old Testament? Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. At Passover, everybody would bring a sacrifice. And then what happens to your sacrifice? It would be butchered on the temple. It would be cut on the temple. And the blood would be spilled out so much, it says, that the blood was literally running like a river into the valley of Kidron absolutely disgusting. Why were they doing this? Why were they doing this? Why did every year they'd have all these sacrifices that would take place? Is because they're anticipating the perfect sacrifice that would save their soul. They're anticipating the perfect sacrifice that saves their soul. What is the perfect sacrifice? The perfect sacrifice is a sacrifice of the one that did not deserve it, of the one that should not have it of the one that should not receive it. Jesus, when he walked on earth, he was the perfect, never sinned once, something we have to believe. He never sinned once. And who is he? He is God. He is God. Never sinned once. He is God. He is man. And then what did he do? Number three, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the purpose of paying my sin. He then what? went to the cross as the perfect sacrifices. And how many sacrifices take today on this world? Animal sacrifices take place today on this world. Yes, we do kill animals, and yes, we do eat them. But I'm not talking about killing animals and eating them. I'm talking about how many sacrifices are taking place on this world today. I will tell you, if they are taking place, they're all in hiding because it's even against the law to happen. It's not a ritual that took place after the Messiah came. Even the Jews believe, aren't, aren't sacrificing. They believe completely in the Old Testament, but they're not sacrificing anymore. Why? Because a perfect sacrifice came. And that perfect sacrifice was a sacrifice of somebody that should not have been sacrificed. And that is a perfect man should not be sacrificed. And the other, God should not be sacrificed. But yet God did. He went to the cross, placing all his sins upon, all my sins upon his shoulders, and then he pays the price, the one that should not be paying the price. When I say that I believe, or John says that he, I believe in the Christ, and you must believe that he is the Christ, you've got to believe that he is God who never sinned, who died on the cross on your behalf, and you cannot get there on your life, you have to get there on his There's a whole different religion because there's a different piece of whether you believe that God died on the cross or you believe a man died on the cross. It's a whole different category. Whole different category. Letter E, I believe that Jesus rose again three days later, appeared to many, and then ascended into heaven. When we say we believe that Jesus is the Christ, we're saying that I believe this event that took place. 
that he rose again. How did the Christian church start in the book of Acts? It started with one statement. One statement. Do you know what the statement is? Jesus is alive. Jesus rose again. Everybody knows he died. Everybody knows he died. But all of a sudden, he is alive. To seal off that he is a savior of the world. He died, paid for our sin, the perfect, sac- perfect sacrifice. He rose and he lives again. How powerful is that? Extreme power. And the reason why it's such an extreme power that takes place is because when Jesus came to earth, he got crucified because he made statements and claims that were most radical statements and claims that had ever taken place on this planet. And what I mean by the most radical claims is he would say, I am the good shepherd. He's not pointing to anybody else. He's pointing to himself. He says, I am the door. He says, I am the way. He says, I am the truth. He says, I am the life. Nobody on this planet has ever talked like that. I mean, if you go back into, you know, Muhammad, he didn't talk about that. He pointed the way. He said, you know, we've got to talk about Allah. But he never spoke in a sense that he was the way. Nobody spoke like that but Jesus. And why did he die? The Jews had to shut him up. Why? Because he was saying he is the way, and if he is the way and keeps on saying that, he's going to have followers. But if he dies, he's what? He's not the way. See, it's a radical statement that if you put all the teaching on yourself, it's, it's good teaching, strong teaching, yeah, wonderful teaching. You can get a huge gathering, a huge following, but there's only one thing you can't do is you can't die. And the reason is because if you die, you're not the way, you're not the truth, you're not the life. But when you say that I believe that Jesus is the Christ, you're saying that Jesus died, but then he rose again three days later. And then he, what, appeared to many. And then he, what, he ascended into heaven, completing the entire salvation of our souls. That's what we're saying when we say Jesus is the Christ. And then all of a sudden, because of this event that took place in history 2,000 years ago, a man walked on earth. That man was God. That man never sinned. That man died on the cross for my sin. The man died and rose and lives again and is preparing a place for me. If I believe in that event, I am saved because that is what is going to get me to heaven. His life, not mine. His actions, not mine. I was once an enemy, but now I'm a friend of God because of what he did, not me. I was once dead, but now I'm alive because of what he did. Not me. I was once lost, but now I'm found because of what he did. Not me. It's, it's all him. It's all him. What he did, not me. This is a doctrinal statement that separates us from anybody else. It's a very exclusive statement, and the reason why is because it is the only way that you can have God is to go on his life, not ours. It's the only way that you can have God. Well, you might look back and say, well, I don't believe in Christianity because this is exclusive. In fact, it's narrow-minded. It's, it's something that is so narrow-minded and you're excluding everybody because I, people don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. Therefore, what? They're not going to be able to get to heaven? Extremely exclusive. All religions are exclusive. Everyone is exclusive. Somebody would come up to me and say, you know, I don't believe in Christianity because it's exclusive. It's narrow-minded. And says, so I'm, I'm going to heaven, and you say that I can't get to heaven without Jesus. Well, I don't believe that, and I believe that I'm going to heaven. I just ask a question. How are you going to get to heaven? And the usual answer that you get is, well, you get to heaven by being nice. 
You get to heaven by being a good guy. Or you get to heaven by a, a, being a good lady. A nice people get to heaven and not nice people don't get to heaven. And I'd look at them and say, wait a second. You said that I left you out when I said Jesus Christ is the only way to get to heaven. Which I did. Is that correct? Yes, you, you did. You left me out when you said that. And I would say, well, your religion just left me out. Because I'm not a good guy. I know it. I know I'm not a good guy. I mean, I can't even obey my laws. Last week we had a birthday party and had a big old fat chocolate cake on the table. And I'm not supposed to eat sugar. I ate half the cake. Even when I didn't want to eat half the cake, I still ate half the cake. I set laws for myself that I do not obey. That I can't obey. And then you expect me to obey God's laws? (laughs) And he is absolutely perfect? No, I am a sinner and I'm in need of a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. This is the doctrine that saves us. This is the doctrine that allows us to be saved because we can't get to heaven on our own merit. We've got to get to heaven on his. So number two, the basis of Christianity. Christianity is more about what he did, what Jesus did for us, than what we can even do for him. Just reading through the book of Psalms, and as I was reading through the book of Psalms, um, a lot of things just, just come to my mind um, as I read. And one thing as I read consistently through the book of Psalms is that it's all about God. It's all about God and his relationship with me. The entire Bible, including the Psalms and all the way through, is a huge proclamation that Jesus did something for you. That's what the proclamation is. Jesus did something for you. And when you read the pages of Scripture, fast, or slow, you'll see nothing more than Jesus has done something absolutely amazing for you. And then again, it what does what? It points us to the gospel. I go to Africa pretty consistently, um, at least once a year. And as I go to Africa, um, I walk around, and I'm not going to be arrogant here, but I'm going to have to be arrogant. I walk around, and people turn their heads and look at me. And when I walk around and people turn their heads and look at me, and it seems like everybody will even come socialize with me, they're connected with me, they, I stand out. We'll just put it that way. Why do I stand out? The reason why I stand out is because I'm an American citizen. And what does that mean to an African? You're in a third world country, and I'm just talking about the people that I work with, and, and the, the general consensus of, of even Africa, Sierra Leone is where it's at. What does it mean that I am an American citizen? Number one, it means that I'm rich. Number two, it means that I'm free. Number three, it means that I'm, I'm strong. In fact, even as incorporated in a lot of the churches in America that, that we need to live a perfect life so God can send us to heaven and the, where he, the place that he's going to send us to if we know we're living a good enough life is to America. <laughs> and that's a concept because they're free, they're rich, they're strong. And if I can impress God enough, then I could go to heaven, which is what? Called America. So I'm walking around, everybody's looking at me. Everybody's like, whoa, almost even a celebrity. It's not because of me. It's because I'm an American citizen. Well, how did I get an American citizenship? It was stamped on me. Sorry, it was stamped on me. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I was born inside of America, and then there was a stamp. Snap, you're an American citizen. And then all of a sudden I walk around another country, and they're like, whoa, there's, there's an American. I was born, and as I was born into it, what took place? That is who I am. When it comes to Christianity, 
And, and, and what I tell you when the power comes is the power is that America has given me its rights, the rights of freedom, the rights of strength, the rights, I would even say, of, of wealth, the rights of opportunity. It's given me all these rights. But when it comes to Christianity, what is Christianity about? It's about God's rights being transferred to you. God's rights being transferred to you. I'm an American citizen because America's rights were transferred to me. I'm free. I, I would just say it. I'm rich. We're, you know, we're strong. I mean, this is, this is the country that I represents me. But when you're a Christian, what takes place is God's rights is transferred to you. And we even see it in John 1, 12 says, so those who believe on him, he gave the rights to become what? Children of God. Those rights were transferred to me. Why? Because of what I did? Because of what he did. I am a child of God because of what he did. Not me. And then all of a sudden his rights were transferred to me. I ask you a question. What drives you? What sends you? What moves you? What motivates you? What, why do you sacrifice? Why do you give? When we look at what drives us, the thing that should be driving us is because I've been given rights to be called a child of God. The things that should send us is that I've been given rights to be called the child of God. What moves us, I have been given the rights to be called child of God. See, if the church is sleeping, it's because it's because we're not moving strong enough because there's not something strong enough that is driving us. There's something that's bigger than us. And what is that? That's the gospel. And so the thing that drives the scripture is what? One word, believe. <laughs> that's it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. This one word, if you just believe, what? That you have rights of being a child of God. That's what moves us. That's what sends us. That is what drives us. just want to look at this passage, this verse again that speaks, who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, abide in him. Confusing words, but I want to look at three different statements. You have no need for anyone to teach you. Whoa. His anointing teaches you. And at the very bottom he says, just as it has taught you, you abide in him. What's going on here? Just give you an example of what's going on. When I married my wife, no one has to teach me how to love her. Nobody has to teach me how to love her. Nobody has to say, okay, this is how you teach her. There doesn't have to be a third-party individual. Because if I'm going to love my wife, I need to get to know her. That's the way I can love her. She is the only one that can teach me because what? She will reveal herself to me. I need to know her hurts so I can help them. I need to know her loves so I can support them. I need to know her needs so I can provide for them. I need to know her desires so I can nurture them. I need to know her passions so I can fuel him. I need to know my wife so I can, so I can love her. This is the same way with God. If you look at this passage, he says, you are given an anointing where you are a child of God and you can have fellowship with God and that anointing does what? That anointing teaches you who God is his loves, his hurts, his desires, his passion, his will, his ambition. When you become a Christian, you just got into a relationship with God. 
And when you get into a relationship with God, what are you going to do? You're going to learn more and more and more of him, more of his grace, more of his beauty, more of his passion, more of his compassion, more of his will, more of his desires, because you are literally walking into a relationship. That's what Christianity is about. Jesus died so we can walk into a relationship with him. And when we walk into a relationship with him, he's going to teach us who he is. So what do we do? We pray. We open the word. We walk with him. We have fellowship with him. As we walk in the door and we're singing worship, what are we doing? What we're doing is we're singing about the glory of God and then we're walking out knowing God more than we knew him before. That's what Christianity is about. John 14 talks about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. If the Holy Spirit lives in us, what's it supposed to do? It says in John chapter 14, Jesus is saying, it, the Holy Spirit is going to teach you everything I did. <laughs> That's what the Holy Spirit is supposed to do. We take the Holy Spirit and we go so many different directions, but what the Holy Spirit is supposed to do is supposed to teach you what he did, what Jesus Christ did. What happens? You get to know him more and more and more. When you get to know him more and more and more, your belief, your passion is set on fire. Why? Because you get to know him more and more and more. Number three, Christianity is more about how God sees us than how we see God. I have a story, but I'm looking at the time that I'm going to skip it and uh, go into the passage. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. It does not say those who have sinned does not have the Father. It doesn't say that. It says, those who denies the Son does not have the Father. It doesn't say, those who are good has the Father. It doesn't, it doesn't say that. It says, those who denies what the Son did. So there's only one thing that's keeping you out of heaven. One thing. And do you know what it is? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not your sin. <laughs> it's not your sin. Sin will, send, will keep you out of heaven, but the one thing that's keeping you out of heaven right now is not your sin. It is you refusing to accept Christ as your Savior. It's you denying that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the only thing that keeps us out of heaven. We don't go to hell because we're sinners, because we have opportunity to accept Christ. Yes, our sin will send us to hell, but we don't go there because of that. We have an opportunity so we go there if we're going to reject Jesus or we're not going to reject Jesus. It's on our table. It's on our plate. And we get to choose. Number, six, or number four, Christianity is more about what God believes about us than what we even believe about God. I've heard many Christians say, you know, I don't believe in God. Why? Well, I can't see how any God would send somebody to hell if he's a loving God. I can't see how any God would be so exclusive. People say, I don't believe in God because I don't sense God. I, if I sense God, I would believe in him. If I saw him, I would believe in him. If I saw him in the sky, if he had spoke, speak to me, I'd believe in him. I don't see God's even hand at work. I pray and he's not answering. You know, these, these things. And we make our relationship with God based on us and what we see. But what's Christianity about? Christianity is not about how we see God. It's about how he sees us. And this is how he sees us. Accept my son. Accept Jesus Christ. And if you accept Jesus Christ, you are my child. You have eternal life. You are pure. You are clean. No matter how filthy you are, you are clean. You are in my kingdom. That's how God sees us. All on the topic of whether we're going to accept the son or not. 
First John 3 says this, 3, 1 says this. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we could be called children of God and such as we are. Do you see John? He's an apostle. They're just completely moved over the one concept. I can't believe it. I'm a child of God. What's driving his life? He wrote books of the Bible. What's driving his life? What's driving his life is, I can't believe it. I have the Father because I've embraced the Son. And what happens? This Father's love is bestowed on us so I could be called the children of God, and that is what I am, and I'm not going to stop. Serving, speaking, loving. Number five, true Christianity should never burn you out. Should burn you. Sorry, true Christianity should never burn out on. True Christians should never burn out on religion. Sorry. That's how I said it. However, I wrote it last time. True Christians should never burn out on religion. Religion. Why should we not burn out on religion? Because we're accepted into the kingdom by what Christ has done for us. The only way that we can burn out on religion is if we try to meet a standard to get into the kingdom of God. We're not designed or capable of meeting the standard to get into the kingdom of God. We have embraced God and therefore have a relationship with God, and he has given us an opportunity that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. He's given us the whole package of citizenship into his kingdom. If he has granted that on us, we should be moved, motivated, energized, driven, excited, and when you open up the Bible, it's not like, oh, here we go again. Because all the pages of the Bible are literally doing is saying you're loved by God. And you're saved by Jesus. The salvation message is what drives us, what sends us. How can that message burn us out? Let's pray. God, we thank you for requiring a perfect sacrifice. God, we don't want to embrace an unholy God. A God who... Um, accepts sin, embraces sin with no sacrifice. It redefines who you are. We thank you that you did not redefine who you are. Therefore, God, we thank you that you've given us a perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ. I just pray for anyone in the room, God, um, who has not accepted you as their Savior, that they would uh, take a step right now, God, and make a commitment that you are the only way, the truth, and the life. And you went to the cross on our behalf rose again so we can be saved. I just pray, God, that every person embraces that in this room. In Christ's name, amen.